Well, how many of you have been to the Space Center down in Houston? Been down there with your family, your kids? Uh, It's a great time if you haven't been down there. But today, uh, Space Center Houston, in affiliation with the Smithsonian Institute, which is a big deal, uh, launched its newest traveling exhibit called The Next Giant Leap Beyond Planet Earth. And uh, this exhibit explores how, how humans will take their first steps towards traveling to deep space destinations like Mars and asteroids um, and even living in deep space independent of Earth. Um, now, obviously, that the name of the exhibit, The Next Giant Leap Beyond Planet Earth, is obviously based on the famous line Neil Armstrong spoke when he set foot on the surface of the, of the moon, right, some 45 years ago now. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And uh, many consider that Apollo 11 mission that transported Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin to the moon and back, uh, they say that that was NASA's greatest achievement, uh, their most successful endeavor, their finest hour. Others would say that NASA's finest hour came two missions later when Apollo 13 was sent to explore the moon. And you know the story. You've probably seen the movie, right? Tom Hanks, um, Apollo 13. An in-flight explosion uh, occurred on the trip to the moon and it threatened the lives of the three crew members. And so the, the, the mission suddenly changed. And uh, Mission Control in Houston spent several days directing the, the repair of that crippled spacecraft so the three astronauts could survive and, and make it back uh, to Earth. And uh, just a fascinating story. And everyone involved in that mission was disappointed, of course, that they had, had failed to achieve their, their original goal of landing on the moon. But in the end, the mission was seen as a success because the crew returned safely and their lives were, were saved. And that incident has been dubbed the successful failure. The successful failure. And I think that's a great title for the book of Jonah. Because I think that's how you could describe him. Despite his failure to willingly participate in God's mission to reach the pagan city of Nineveh, God sovereignly directed an amazing revival and the Ninevites were saved. And so Jonah was a successful failure, and so was the nation of Israel that he represented. You're familiar with the Old Testament enough to know that God had clearly said time and time again that he had designed Israel to be his missionary nation. They were to represent God in the world and reveal his love, his mercy, his compassion to all the peoples of the earth and to show them how they could have a relationship with the one true God of the universe. But the nation of Israel failed to fulfill their mission as God's witness to the Gentile nations. They were not the light to the Gentiles as God intended them to be. And despite their failure, however, God sovereignly accomplished his work of providing salvation to the Gentiles through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, having said that, we need to understand as we approach this book, the book of Jonah, that Jonah is a picture of the nation of Israel. And his autobiography here was intended by God to remind the nation of their missionary purpose and rebuke them for their callous indifference to the religious plight of other nations. And so, they had been unworthy recipient. Uh, they, they themselves had been unworthy recipients of God's mercy time and time and time again, and yet they stubbornly refused to extend that same mercy to the Gentiles. And furthermore, when God extended mercy to the Gentiles, in spite of their poor witness, they got mad. <laughs> they resented God for being merciful to Gentiles. And so this Selfish hard-heartedness was exemplified in the heart of all people, the prophet of Israel, who tragically reflected the heart of the entire nation. And what makes Jonah unique among the prophets, kind of what sets Jonah off from the other, not just minor prophets, but even the major prophets, is that his prophetic ministry wasn't so much in what he said 
but rather in his own life and experience. So most of the other uh, prophets that we've looked at so far and we'll look at in the future, it's all about the message, their message. Um, well, the focus of, of, of Jonah is more on the messenger than the message itself. In fact, the only message that is here in the book of Jonah, the, the, the message that Jonah preached, is, is in chapter 3, verse 4, and it says this, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and cried out and said, here it is, quote, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. <laughs> That's it. That's the only prophecy that's recorded in this book. Uh, Five words in the Hebrew, eight words in English. Well, the point is that that Jonah himself was a walking object lesson of God's compassion and God's mercy. And through his experience, God was reminding Israel how they had experienced his undeserved mercy and compassion, and he was rebuking them for not being willing to extend that same mercy and compassion to those as undeserving as they were. And so we've chosen the title tonight uh, of Jonah, God's Infinite Compassion. God's Infinite Compassion. And if you want to know what I I think the the key verse of of the book would be Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, it says, He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, here it is, that you are a gracious and, what kind of God? Compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. And then notice verse 10 uh, in that same chapter, Then the Lord said, You had, what? Compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there were more than 120 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand as well as many animals? And so the the point of this book is it's all about God's compassion, God's heart of compassion for lost people. Now, if you wanted to break down this, this book or the story of Jonah, you can do it uh, according to the chapters, and it breaks down very nicely into four sections or four scenes here. Um, chapter one, you could call Jonah's defiance, excuse me, Jonah's defiance. He, he protested uh, against the Lord. Uh, in chapter two, you see Jonah's repentance. He, he prayed to the Lord. Um, and then in chapter three, you see Jonah's compliance. Uh, he preached for the Lord. And then finally, uh, in chapter 4, we, we, we see Jonah's petulance, uh, which means he pouted, right? You, 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 we know what it means to have a petulant child, right? A child who sulks, who pouts. And, and he was just like a little kid, pouting, sulking, uh, when he didn't get, get his way. So let's go through these uh, chapters one at a time. And because it's such a short book, uh, we should be able to cover... Um, the entire thing tonight. Um, And so let's just look at this. Number one, Jonah's defiance. Jonah's defiance, chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. So we're introduced to this prophet named Jonah, who lived and ministered in, uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, during the reign of Jeroboam II, around 793 to 753 B.C., Second uh, Kings chapter 14, verse 25, mentions Jonah, that he was from a place named, a, a town called Gath-Hefer, which was a, a village about two miles northeast of, of Nazareth, up in the region of Galilee, um, which was, by the way, about 500 miles um, away from uh, Nineveh, where he was uh, supposed to be going. Um, and, and again, even though Jonah introduced himself as the main character here, he's writing his own autobiography, if you will, we need to keep in mind, like every other story in the Bible, that God is the main character of this story, not Jonah, okay? And I think that's just basic Bible study 101, it is God is the hero of every story in the Bible. It's not David, it's not, you know, anyone else, it, it's, it's always God. God gets the glory, um, and the reason why I say that is because it's clear, and you're going to see this as we uh, go through this book, that God is the one who orchestrated this entire story 
to show his love and compassion for lost people. This is not just a story about a great fish. Okay, this is a story about a great forgiver. And that is our great God. Notice verse 2. Arise, he said, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Nineveh um, was situated on the eastern bank of the Tigris River, about 150 miles northwest of modern-day Baghdad. So if you're used to looking at the map of the Middle East on the news, uh, that's kind of where uh, this city was located. It was the largest city in the known world at the time, with an estimated population ranging from 600,000 to a million inhabitants. A lot of people. Um, and it was fortified so well that it was considered almost impregnable. It had, it had this series of moats around it, and it had a, a couple walls, one of them being 100 foot high, uh, that was so thick that they say that three horse-drawn chariots could ride around the top of the wall side by side. That, that's how this city was just this massive uh, fortress. Um, Nineveh served as the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was ruling the world at the time, and it was threatening to attack Israel and take over the Promised Land. And in fact, according to Jonah's contemporaries, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, and and Amos, the Assyrians would be used by God to to punish and destroy Israel. So they knew that. Jonah knew that. And so Assyria was Israel's arch enemy. And while while the Israelites hated all Gentiles... There was no nation that they hated more than the Assyrians. And, and notice it says here, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The Assyrians were known to be a proud, ruthless, godless people who were notorious for the brutal atrocities that they inflicted on their captives. And they, they were known to, to skin their enemies alive, to chop off their, their hands, their feet, their noses, their ears, just dismember their enemies. and In fact, in every city they conquered, they would leave a pyramid of human skulls, kind of as their barbaric business card, right? They're, this is their signature, right, that, that, that the Assyrians have been here. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the capital city of these pagan people was, was world-renowned for its wickedness, its violence, its, its, its immorality, its, its witchcraft, its idolatry. I mean, you could call it um, Sin City. Nineveh was Sin City. And, and their wickedness, it says, had come up before me. God was saying that, that, that it's all like, like fire kind of rises up. This is smoke from a fire rises up to your nostrils, right? If you're standing over the fire, he said, hey, their wickedness has risen to the holy God of Israel. And it's time for me to judge this wicked nation. But before he dropped the hammer on them, he wanted to warn them and give them an opportunity to repent so that he could have mercy and compassion on them. And again, this is just, again, revealing to us the character of God, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33.11 says that. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so again, right off the bat, you're seeing God as being compassionate by not just, not just cleaning their clock right away, right? But giving them a chance to repent. And so God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to be his messenger of mercy. Now, if you know what we just said about the way the Israelites viewed the Assyrians, right? You think Jonah was going to be really excited about that call? To, to go tell the people to repent of their sinful ways um, so that they could repent? Basically, God was sending Jonah on a rescue mission to Nineveh to save their enemies the enemies of Israel. And so because of his blind patriotism for the nation of Israel and and his lack of compassion for the Gentile nations, Jonah initially refused to go and he went in the the exact opposite direction instead. And and, and you you gotta know that Jonah, as did all the Israelites, have malice in their hearts to the Assyrians. You You know what malice is, right? Malice is when it's beyond anger, it's beyond hatred, it's beyond bitterness. It's like, the, it's like anger, bitterness, hatred, you know, at, at, to the ultimate. It's when you want bad things to happen to people, 
right? You want bad things to happen to, to your enemy. That's malice. And so it was obvious. They, they, Jonah was like, hey, light them up. God, torch them up, you know? Torch those suckers. They deserve it. They're ungodly. They're wicked. And so it says in verse 3, but, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, you say, well, okay, so he went the opposite way. He didn't just go the opposite way. He, he went all the way across, or at least he was heading that way. He wanted to go all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to the west coast of what is now Spain. And in those days, Tarshish was the westernmost point on any trade route. In other words, it was the furthest away from Nineveh as you could possibly get. It was some 2,000 miles away from where he was at uh, in, in Gath Heifer, in the Galilee region. It was 2,000. So that, that would put him 2,500 miles away from, uh, from, from, uh, from, from Nineveh. But notice, it didn't say he rose up to flee to Tarshish from Nineveh, but from the presence of the Lord. I think this is a good reminder for us that, that it's, it's the natural instinct of all of us as sinful human beings to, to try to escape from God's presence. We, we, we will do anything we can to ditch God. I mean, Adam and Eve did it, right, in the garden when they, they ate of the fruit. And, and what was their initial reaction? When they sinned, what did they do? They went and hid, right, in the garden, thinking that they could hide from God. Play hide-and-seek with God. Yes, seriously? Right? They found out really fast you can't, you can't hide from God. And Jonah was about to find out the same thing. And, and again, this is important for us to remember. It is a logical impossibility to escape from someone who's everywhere. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. And, and, and nowhere is this made clearer than in, in, in Psalm 139. Psalm 139 Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is, in, is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Again, you, you, you might be able to run from God, but you can't hide, right? And, and, and notice what happens. He says, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, which is right next to modern-day Tel Aviv. Um, he found a ship, was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Again, twice it says that he's trying to run from the presence of the Lord. It's like the little kid I heard about had a friend who, who, who had a little kid that wanted to play hide-and-seek. And so the way he would play hide-and-seek is he'd go and stand in the center of the living room and he'd cover up his eyes. As if, if he couldn't see anyone, no one could see him, right? And everybody got a chuckle out of that. Oh, that's so cute. Look at that little guy. He thinks that just because he can't see you that you can't see him, right? And we think, how silly is that? Well, that's Jonah. Standing in the middle of the room with his eyes covered thinking, okay, God can't see me. I'm going to go down in the boat. I'm going to hide down in the, in the hole. He's not going to be able to see me, right? Well, check it out. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Th that word, when it says the Lord hurled a great wind, it's the word used to describe someone throwing a spear at someone. So it's like God took a storm. He saw that ship heading out into the Mediterranean Ocean. He goes, okay, watch this, Jonah. Right? And the storm hit just at the right time, at the right place. Um, and, and I would just say this. If you are reluctant, or that's being nice about it, or defiant, because he, was being def he wasn't just being reluctant, he was being defiant. If you're being reluctant or defiant to do something that God has clearly told you to do, you're maybe running from some difficult command or some responsibility that he's given you, just know you're heading for a stormy time in your life. Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the treacherous is hard. Proverbs 13, 21, adversity pursues sinners. I, I told a couple one time, 
that was, uh, you know, pursuing marriage. And, and, and uh, you know, I was not uh, confident that the guy was really pursuing the Lord. I, I really felt he was kind of running from the Lord at the time. And, and so I just told the girl, I said, are you ready to get on a boat with Jonah? Because that's about what you get married to this guy, you're going to be on a boat with Jonah. Because he's running from the Lord and he's got nothing but storms ahead and, and you're, you're going to have to go along for the ride. And uh, thankfully, God used uh, a, a number of circumstances to get that guy's attention and get him focused on Christ and they're happily married today and it's, it's really a cool thing. Um, someone said this, whenever we try running from God, he's committed to making our lives miserable. <laughs> I mean, is that not true? When, we're try, when we try running from God, he's committed to making our lives miserable. And so often, he'll use some kind of storm to do it, not to punish us, but to mercifully intervene. Until we see God-sent storms as interventions and not punishments, we'll never get better, we'll only get bitter. Some difficult circumstances you're facing right now may well be a God-sent storm of mercy intended to be his intervention in your life. This was an act of grace and mercy, this storm, right? He could have said, you know what, Jonah, you're a knucklehead. I'll find somebody else. Have fun in Tarshish. And he could have just given him over, like Romans 1 says, right? But the fact that he came after him, right, shows that he was being compassionate. He was having mercy on Jonah, and he was pursuing Jonah through his sweet providence, and, and, and we see throughout this story um, that God prepared a storm. God prepared uh, a fish. God prepared uh, a, a, a plant. God prepared a worm. God prepared a wind, right? It's, it, God's in control of this whole thing. And he's pursuing Jonah through his providence. Notice verse 5, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Listen, when you've got scared sailors, you've got a serious storm. Because sailors are used to that kind of stuff, right? They'd seen storms before. This must have been the big one. And so they're, they're freaking out. They're praying to their gods while they're throwing stuff overboard, right? Trying to lighten the load and keep the, the, the ship more buoyant. And, and notice the fact that, that, that Jonah's down in the hole sleeping. You know, he was, he, he, he was just there, um, you know, resting. And, and, and you know, I think sometimes, you know, you might look at that and go, well, he must have been at perfect peace, right? I mean, how do you sleep through that, right? I think this is a good, a good reminder for us here that, that uh, just because you can sleep through a storm, not literal a storm, but even a rocky time in your life, um, is not necessarily a sign of a peaceful heart, but maybe of a callous conscience, right? Sometimes we make decisions based on a peace in our heart. Well, I just, I just have a peace about this. Well, apparently Jonah had a peace <laughs> about going to Tarshish because he was, he was sacked out on the bottom of the ship, Right? So just because you have a peace in your heart is no indication that you're doing the will of God. So let's be careful that we don't make decisions based on a peace in our heart because that may just be an indication that you have a hard heart. If you have a peace in your heart and you're about to do something, I, I know people that are like, they're ready to go sin. They're ready to disobey the clear teaching of Scripture and they will say, they've said to me, you know, they're going to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get a divorce. And I'm like, well, what are your biblical grounds? Well, you know, I'm just not happy and I know God wants me to be happy. And I just have a peace about this. I'm like, you have a peace about this? Well, apparently that's revealing you have a hard heart because you're about to disobey God's word. How could you have a, a, a peace about that? Verse 6, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Now, this is ridiculous that the pagan captain had to tell Jonah to pray. I mean, what a rebuke this must have been to Jonah, who was like the, the only believer on the boat, but he was acting more like an atheist than anyone else. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots. So may we, may we learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. 
In ancient times, this was uh, what, they, what guys would do to determine what, what to do in situations. They would cast lots to determine the will of the gods. It was kind of like drawing straws, if you will. Uh, and, and God providentially controlled the lots to point to Jonah. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I always quote that verse when we're playing Yahtzee. Every decision is from the Lord. Come on, Lord, I need, need Yahtzee right now. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where, I mean, talk, hey, what's your occupation? Uh, I'm a prophet. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be embarrassing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a runaway prophet. <laughs> what's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So once, once they discovered that, that he, was at the, he was the cause of this storm, they, they began to pepper him with questions. And when he finally admitted that he was related to the living God, the creator of land and sea, that's when they really freaked out. Wait, you know the God of the, of the sea? Verse 10, then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing for the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So uh, he, just, he just let it all hang out. He said, hey, listen, I'm a prophet, and I'm running away from God. You're doing what? And you're on our boat? Thanks for picking our boat. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. It was only getting worse. I mean, you think about this, at this point, he could have repented, right, and, and called the sailors to repentance. But his heart was so hard by now that he would rather die than talk to anybody about the Lord, whether it was the Ninevites or the sailors. He didn't want to talk to anybody about the Lord. So he says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon me, has come upon you. I mean, he had a death wish. And, and, and we know that because you look at chapter 4, verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Verse 8 he says it again at the end. He said, death is better to me than life. He's just basically asking God. He's trying to kill himself, right? Hey, throw me overboard. What does he think is going to happen? Oh, I know God's got a fish out there. It's going to swallow me up and, you know. No, he's thinking, hey, I tried to get away. Didn't work. I'm just going to kill myself. I'm just going to drown to death. And then I don't have to deal with it. Verse 13 However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. So here's these pagan guys that got more integrity than the prophet of God. They don't want to just kill them. When they realized it wasn't working, verse 14, they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. And these guys are more spiritual at this point than Jonah is. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. So at first, they're, they're hesitant to take his life. They try, to, try their best to ride out the storm, and once they realized it wasn't working, they, they decided to take Jonah up on his offer and say, okay, I guess we've got no better options. We're going to throw you overboard. But they prayed that, that God would not hold them accountable for his death. And, and I think this is amazing. It says, as soon as he hit the water, as soon as Jonah's body disappeared beneath the raging waves, the storm miraculously and instantaneously stopped. I mean, I think it's probably, it, it probably happened just like on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus said, hush, be still, and it said the water became like glass. Storms don't do that. So it takes a while for storms to dissipate and for the waves to stop rocking around. But when it, when it immediately goes like glass, you know that got the sailor's attention. You're like, whoa. 
Then what happened? Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And some would say that this, that was evidence that they got converted. I mean, here's this, this, this Jonah, just the utterly useless prophet who would rather die than see anybody be converted. But even in his drowning, a whole boatload of guys get saved. He's a successful failure. It's like God saying to him, listen, take that, Jonah. I'm going to use you to reach people even if you don't want to do it. And then this is where the story takes a huge turn, right? Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Verse 17 of the first chapter is why Jonah gets attacked all the time. No story in the Bible has been criticized more than the story of Jonah. And it's the favorite story that critics of the Bible like to use to prove that the Bible isn't true. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? That's impossible. Right? That a whale could swallow a man, and even if he did, the man would never survive three days, three nights. He would, he would be digested inside the whale, and so they put the Bible in the category of the fairy tale alongside Pinocchio. Right? Because Pinocchio, remember, he fell in the ocean, he got swallowed by Monstro, and he got the wood from Geppetto's boat, and he built a fire, and the Monstro sneezed, and he shot him out onto the shore, right? It's fairy tale stuff, it's Disneyland stuff. And so in an attempt to refute critics, some Bible scholars simply say that the story of Jonah was, was an allegory. It's a parable. It was never meant to be understood as history. Well, first of all, I don't know if you realize this, but there are several modern accounts of people being swallowed by large fish and living to tell about it. In 1758... A sailor was swallowed, a sailor was swallowed uh, by a 40-foot fish known as a sea dog in the Mediterranean Sea. And the fish spit the man out after several minutes of fighting. Um, Marshall Jenkins, an American whaler, was swallowed by a sperm whale in 1771 in the South Atlantic, was later vomited out of the dead creature's mouth when it was brought alongside the ship. The most well-known and well-documented of these stories is that of a British whaler named James Bartley, who was swallowed by a whale 200 miles east of the Falkland Islands in 1891, and he was a harpoonist, and after harpooning this sperm whale from one of the longboats, uh, he was swallowed up when the whale kind of turned on the boat, and so that whale, though, was still connected to the harpoon line, and, and when the whale surfaced 48 hours later, it was dead, and so the whalers began to harvest the whale, and they saw movement in his stomach, and guess who came out? They found Bartley alive, unconscious, but alive. And they said that his skin was bleached white from the gastric juices. He'd lost all the hair on his body, and he was in a complete state of shock. I should say so, right? <laughs> to put it mildly, he was in a state of shock. <laughs> but they placed him in the captain's quarters for several weeks until he recovered, fully recovered, and resumed uh, his duties as a whaler on that ship. So it's kind of cool we got some stories like that, but even if we didn't, right, um, we should have faith to believe that anything is possible with God, right? He was in complete control throughout this entire story. He sovereignly controlled a storm, hurled it like a spear, right? Uh, he, he controlled lots. He controlled sailors. He controlled the Ninevites. He controls this plant we're going to see, this worm, the wind in chapter 4. Why couldn't he sovereignly control the development and the movement of a giant fish, Right? More importantly, the, the reason why I personally believe that Jonah is not a parable, uh, it's not an allegory, or it's not just some fairy tale, is because none other than Jesus Christ himself referenced the story of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 11, which clearly verifies that this is not just some Old Testament story, right, but an actual historic account. 
I mean, you can't get any better evidence than that, that Jesus, right, the Son of God, um, references the story and act, talks about it as if it actually happened. So you've got chapter 1, Jonah's defiance. He protested against the Lord. Then let's look at chapter 2, Jonah's repentance. Jonah's repentance, he prayed. He prayed, chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. We'll stop there for a second. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like for Jonah to be inside the stomach of a fish. I mean, I know what it's like to be outside of a fish. You know, when you fish or you, you know, and it's slimy, it's stenchy, it's nasty. There's, I mean, just the, can you imagine being inside a fish, not just all the yuckiness of it, but the fear and the paranoia. And yet this is what God used to bring this prodigal prophet to a place of repentance and to renew his commitment to be his mouthpiece to Nineveh. And so Jonah went from defiantly fleeing from God's presence to desperately seeking God's presence. Why? Because Jonah knew that he deserved to die because of his sin, but God didn't give him what he deserved. I mean, could he, he could have just said, fine, <laughs> and left him to die in the Mediterranean Ocean, but he, and he could have raised somebody else to preach to Nineveh, but God mercifully rescued him and restored him to service. And, and I want you to notice that this prayer that he prayed in verses 2 through 9 is not a plea for deliverance, but more of a thanksgiving for deliverance. I mean, he's inside the fish now, praying, and he's thanking God for the rescue boat <laughs> that he had sent along to, to, to deliver him. And so... Uh, there's not a word of petition here. Uh, the prayer is simply uh, one of praise and contrition and rededication. Um, this is truly one of the greatest prayers in the Bible where if, 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 if I didn't tell you where I was reading from and you just closed your eyes, you would think I was reading a song. And it was probably because uh, Jonah was raised on the Psalms and so he had a lot of Psalms memorized and and, uh, and, and those themes were in his mind and his heart, and so they just came out when he began to pray. But notice what he says. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Notice he's acknowledging God's sovereignty here. You cast me into the deep. It wasn't the sailors, right? You did it. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Seaweed, anyone? Right? Uh, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So he went glug, 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 all the way like down to the bottom is what he was saying. Down to the root of the mountains. Notice verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So, I mean, he was losing consciousness, right? And that's what happens when you drown. You lose consciousness and he was fading away. And as he was fading his way, his last fading thought was, was of God. And he was beginning to pray. And he's saying, God, you heard my prayer. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Some would say that that is the theme of the book of Jonah, that one phrase, salvation is from the Lord. The point is that the Lord had saved Jonah. You've heard of foxhole conversions, right? This is a whale belly conversion. Not that he got saved, I don't think, but, right, you, you know, sometimes um, when, when soldiers get religious, it's when their life's in danger, right? Um, well, hey, God may have you in some slimy, suffocating situation like this, right? And he may very well have appointed that trial to bring you to repentance. And guess what? It's time for you to turn to the Lord in prayer. And get your heart right. Get your attitude right with him. This is what was going on. This is Jonah's repentance. 
Verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. So here God granted Jonah the very thing he didn't want God to grant the Ninevites and that was merciful forgiveness. He got a second chance. That's what Jonah got. He got a second chance. And that's what God was wanting to give the Ninevites, a second chance. And so God caused the fish to throw up Jonah on the shore. And somebody said that even, even the fish was sick to his stomach over Jonah. Because everything else in the story obeyed God except for Jonah. The, the wind's obeying, the worm's obeying, the plant's obeying, the fish is obeying. Everybody's under the, the control of, of, of God and, and, and submitting except for Jonah. Well, we come to chapter 3 and we could call this Jonah's compliance, that he finally complies with the will of God here. Notice I could have said Jonah's obedience, but I think it's probably better to say compliance He was compliant more than he was obedient, and we're going to find out um, that's exactly what it was when we get to chapter 4. But notice verse 1 of chapter 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. There's the second chance, right? Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim uh, proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. In other words, it would take you three days to walk through the entire city. That's how big it was. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so here's Jonah responding to the discipline of the Lord, and he's agreed now to go to Nineveh and to tell them that they basically have forty days to repent. You got forty days. Um, That might be a good book. There's 40 days of everything these days, right? That's like the, the popular book. And you walk in the, any Christian book, there are 40 days to this, 40 days to that. How about 40 days to repent? We should write a book about that. 40 days to repent before God judges them for their wickedness. And so here he comes. Jonah shows up in Nineveh. Can you imagine what a sight that dude must have been? I mean, here comes, I mean, based on the other stories that we've heard about tonight, he was probably hairless, Bleached white skin, wandering through the streets of Nineveh, telling people to repent. That had to be a funny scene. And people were like, (laughs) he walks by, they're like, dude, what happened to you? And what a perfect platform to preach the message. Um, I mean, hey, I I got swallowed by a fish (laughs) and got spit out. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think it's interesting that, that God purposely orchestrated the fish incident to connect to these people who worshipped the god Dagon. Dagon was the main god of the Assyrians, and guess what? Dagon was part man and part fish. So he had a captive audience. Like, a what? A what swallowed you? A fish Right? So they immediately made a connection probably in their minds. God and fish, fish, Dagon. This, what's up? This, guy, this, guy's from, this guy's from God. We need to listen to this guy. And Jesus said in Luke 11.30 that Jonah was assigned to them. And I think what that meant is essentially that Jonah had been brought back from the dead, uh, which served as an indication that they should listen to what he had to say. He was a sign. Look at this creepy-looking guy, right? Notice verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. 
And so here is the nation, or the city, I should say, um, at the sound of Jonah's message, they immediately repent, and it's led, the repentance is led by the king himself. And they all say, no more eating, nothing, no, man, cattle, nobody that can eat, can't eat, right? No food, not even water. Let's all put on sackcloth. Put, go, go find your cows. Put sackcloth on your cows. <laughs> Everybody's on sackcloth. Throw ashes everywhere, which was all a sign of repentance, right? You know what this is, guys? This, this to me, is the real miracle of the story. It's not Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. It's, it's that, that, that the entire city repents. This is the greatest revival ever recorded, not just in Scripture, but even in church history. I mean, nothing close to this occurs anywhere else in the Old Testament or the New Testament or in church history. I mean, this is is the greatest awakening. You've heard of the Great Awakening, right? These great revivals in Europe and in New England. Um, Man, this is the ultimate revival. And so we see Jonah's compliance. And then finally... um, well, verse 10, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So God spared them for 150 years because this generation died off, and then the next generation continued in their wicked ways, and God ultimately brought the Babylonians right to destroy the Assyrians and destroy the city of Nineveh. But for now, his judgment was stayed. It was postponed because they repented. And, I mean, if the book of Jonah ended there, you're like, woohoo! what a cool story. I like, I like the book of Jonah. This is really good. Well, there's one more chapter, and it's the most confusing, perplexing chapter of all of them. Um, look at verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this why I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I mean, what a bizarre response from a preacher that God just used to stir up the most amazing revival in the history of mankind, he walks away angry and depressed. And what it tells, it reveals to us that he was, go, he was just going through the motions. He still hadn't grasped or embraced God's heart of compassion for the Ninevites. I mean, imagine leading someone to Christ, right? You have the privilege of leading someone to Christ, and you walk away, God, I am so mad at you, God. I knew you would save them, and that's why I didn't want to witness to them in the first place. And now I wish I could just die. You're like, what is your problem? I mean, how messed up is that? He was angry at God for being gracious and merciful to the Ninevites. And he says, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving, loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He's basically quoting Exodus 34, 6 there, which is, which is the main description of God's character in the Old Testament. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Are you, are you serious? Are you, are you kidding me? Do you have a reason to be angry about this? Notice verse 5, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. He thought, well, maybe, maybe uh, I'm going to wait 40 days. Maybe God will still get him. You know, I think he still had malice in his heart. He's like sitting over there wanting to watch the, the, the fire and brimstone come down like it did on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so while the angels in heaven were rejoicing over the, the Ninevites' repentance, Jonah went outside the city to sulk. He's just like the prodigal son's older brother who refused to, to celebrate his return. And, and, and just like 
The father in that story, right, had to go out and appeal to the younger brother, or excuse me, to the older brother. That's what essentially God does here. He's like the father coming out to appeal to Jonah. He says, so the Lord God appointed a plan and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. I mean, you should see the contrast. He said he's extremely angry that that God spared the Ninevites, but he's really happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so they became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Well, at this point, if I was God, I would have been real tempted to say, you know what, I'd be happy to kill you, Jonah, because you are just more trouble to me than you're worth. But again... What is God doing? He's continuing to pursue Jonah. He's showing compassion. He's showing mercy to this knucklehead prophet. And he, he, he has this plant grow up miraculously. This thing goes, shoots up, and, and provides him shade. And he's all like, sweet. Because, hey, if you've ever been out where Babylon and, and, and Nineveh and and uh, Baghdad and all that. I mean, it's just not a fun place to hang out, right? And so here's some shade, right? He's excited about that. And then this got this little worm. It says, God appointed a worm. So you got, listen, <laughs> the little worm plays as significant of a role in God's sovereign plan as the big fish. You got fish, you got worms, you got plants, you got all this stuff obeying the Lord. And, and, and so he, he appoints this worm to, to, to eat this plant, and it withers. And then he sends this wind to beat down on Jonah. Again, this is all part of God's loving discipline of this guy. He's pursuing him. He's, he's wanting to lead him to repentance. Why? Because he cared more about a stupid plant than he did about people's souls. He got more joy from being shaded from the sun's heat than than the entire city being rescued from God's wrath. And again, listen to what God says in verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And, And just listen to Jonah. I have good reason to be angry even to death. I mean, he's just like a whiner. A powder, like a little petulant child, having a little temper tantrum over his plant that died. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. I mean, you had nothing to do with that thing. And yet you had compassion on it. You you cared about it. And then he says this, verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? I think that reference there, the the 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and the left hand, what is he talking about? Probably children or babies even, Right? So if you had 120,000 babies, that would put the total population of of at least 600,000 or more. But with the point that that God was making to Jonah was this, hey, you had absolutely nothing to do with that plant, and yet you had compassion on it. Shouldn't I have compassion for these lost people who I created and I sustained all these years and who will perish apart from a relationship with me? Surely I have reason to care for these people And so do you. So should you. I mean, you've experienced my grace and my mercy and my compassion. So so shouldn't you be willing to extend the same grace and mercy and compassion to other people? Wouldn't you want me to be as compassionate to the Ninevites as I am being compassionate to you right now? Have you ever noticed that the book of Jonah ends with the question. I mean, it's kind of a cliffhanger. We're left hanging at the end like, well, uh, so what did Jonah say? How did he respond? Well, first of all, I think this 
book is his response. The fact that he was um, willing to write out his own autobiography that makes him look like a doofus, right, I think is his response. He, he, he's writing this out for the nation of Israel. He says, okay, you know what, God, I get it. <laughs> I messed up big time. I see, I see now, and I'm going to write this out under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, right, for the nation of Israel. So I think he learned the lesson that God was wanting to teach him. But I think more importantly, I think why Jonah ended his book like this was it forces us to do what God was leading him to do, and that was to compare his heart to God's heart, to see if he shared his compassion for the lost. And so the real issue is not how Jonah answered God's question, but how you will answer God's question, how I will answer God's question. The book was originally intended as a rebuke to the nation of Israel who, who refused to be a light to the Gentiles. They sat selfishly and self-righteously in their own land, feeling hatred and disgust toward everyone around them, right, outside of the promised land, and instead of reaching out to them, they, they were judging them and waiting for judgment to fall on them. But I also think that the book was intended for us to be a rebuke to us as the church. Why? Because we're God's witness nation now. Um, we talked about this a few weeks ago that, that Israel has been laid aside temporarily. And we've been commissioned by God to reach the lost with the message of salvation. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing and teaching but oftentimes as the church, we lack God's compassion for the lost just like Israel did. And we care more about our temporal well-being than, than people's eternal well-being. We care more about our creature comforts than, than the souls of men and women dying and going to hell. And we forget we're, we're, we're more concerned about living a comfortable life than, hey, my neighbor is going to hell. That person sitting in my class, right next to me in class at college or whatever, uh, that, 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 that person in, in, sitting in the cubicle uh, right on the other side of me, right? They're like a Ninevite. And they may be really wicked people. They may be ungodly people. And we have to ask ourselves, hey, are we having malicious thoughts towards them? And go, you know what? They deserve to get what they, what, what they got coming to them. Because they're a jerk. <laughs> Sometimes we think that stuff. But this is where we have to realize that as, as, as those who've experienced God's compassion and mercy in our lives, right? If you're saved, right, you've experienced God's mercy and compassion, shouldn't you be willing and eager to extend that same compassion and mercy to others? Wouldn't you want that same, what happened to you to happen to them? And I think too many of us, like, as Christians, are like Jonah. We, we've got this proud, cynical attitude towards unbelievers. And, and, and we kind of, uh, I've got no problems with Rush Limbaugh necessarily, but we become like the Rush Limbaugh Christians, you know, where every, we're just criticizing everything and everyone that doesn't think like us. And, you know, I'm not saying I don't agree with a whole lot of what the guy says, but it's just the attitude, the way it comes across. We can become like that as a church that we criticize those who don't agree with us or who aren't like us. And so rather than providing some uh, compassionate care for, to, to unbelievers in our community, we become a haven of hate, which makes us irrelevant in the community that God intended us to reach. And so instead of be, being a rescue mission, right, that's constantly looking for new and creative ways to reach out to lost people, what do we do? We, 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 we develop a, a self-righteous subculture that judges and condemns the world around us. The good news is that centuries after God sent Jonah to Nineveh, God sent another messenger to sinful mankind, and this messenger went willingly and joyfully and obediently. Why? Because he had God's heart for the lost. And you know who that messenger was. That was God's own son, Jesus Christ, who shared his father's compassion for lost sinners. It says in Matthew 9, 36, that when he saw the people, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And, God, and Jesus showed his compassion for sinners by dying for them. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus succeeded where Jonah failed. Jonah, Jesus could have said, hey, Dad, why save these guys? They've been nothing but trouble to you. They've just rebelled against you and your authority and they disobey you. They're your enemies. And so he had to come and deal with the the lack of compassion that was there still in Israel. The Pharisees were following right in the steps of of Jonah. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there because I fast twice a week. I do all this stuff. It was a self-righteous subculture that they had created that was judgmental and critical. Right? They didn't have a a compassion for the lost. And that's why they accuse Jesus of being a what? A friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. Well, ultimately, even though Jonah was the worst prophet in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he's the only one that Jesus likened himself to. Worst prophet in the Old Testament, right? The only prophet in the New Testament that Jesus likened himself to. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Obviously a reference to his death, right? His burial, his resurrection. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so what Jesus was saying is, hey, listen, in the same way that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, I'm assigned, right? My death, burial, and resurrection will be assigned to you to repent. And so I would just encourage you, if you're not a, a believer yet, you're here tonight and you're not a Christian yet, you don't, uh, you don't know God, you don't have a relationship with God, listen, the good news is you just need to repent. You just need to repent and acknowledge that and embrace Jesus Christ and God will have compassion on you. He will change you. And guess what? He'll give you a heart for other lost people like yourself. Some of you will remember a guy named Keith Green, a kind of prophet in his own right. He was a musician and uh, died an untimely death. But one of his... um, Famous song, most famous songs is called Asleep in the Light. And um, let me just read the lyrics as I close and because and, and, he, he, I think he bases it on the book of Jonah. Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care, don't you care? Are you gonna let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. You know it's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts, no one even sheds a tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs, and you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? He brings people to your door, and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace, and all heaven just weeps, because Jesus came to your door, and you've left them out in the street. Open up, open up and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries, so how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one, but like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Can't you see it's such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed Jesus rose from the grave, and you can't even get out of bed. Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Don't close your eyes. Don't pretend the job's done. Listen, the job's not done, beloved, right? A lot of people still need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we can't run away. 
from that responsibility um, or that privilege. Um, even if we're dealing with wicked people, right, who we feel like deserve what they got coming to them. That's not the heart of God, right? God, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's, he's, he's gracious. He's merciful. He wants people to repent. And so should we. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the book of Jonah. Super convicting book, God. Thank you for, for preserving it here for us. And we know originally it was for the nation of Israel. But Lord, in many ways, we are exactly like them uh, in our lack of compassion. It's so easy, especially in a Bible church like this, to, to come uh, within the four walls of this church and feel like we, we're kind of in a safe haven and um, you know, we have our Bible studies and, we, and we, we, we're away from the wickedness of the world. And, but Lord, I pray we'd never forget what the purpose of the church is and that's to be a, a mission, a lighthouse, that we're coming here to get equipped uh, and encouraged and, 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 and discipled and mentored so that we can go out and tell others about Jesus. And so help us never to retreat or to the four walls of this church and, and, uh, and somehow isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. But Lord, uh, use our times here together to, to train us and equip us and prepare us uh, to go out and to reach this world with the gospel. So give us, give us your heart for the lost, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.